morning. Our scripture lesson today is from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until he gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus, the word of God for the people of God. Well, many years ago, back when I was a brand-new, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, first-year student at Albion College, the very first professor of the, the very first class I took was a man named Dr. Alan Horstman. Now, Dr. Horstman was just a little guy. He only stood about yay tall, and, and he didn't have very much hair, and he wore glasses, and he wore tweed sports jackets with patches on the elbows. In other words, he looked every bit like your typical mild-mannered, harmless college professor type, but woe to the student who underestimated Dr. Horstman. It didn't take long before Dr. Horstman's students discovered that he was, in fact, the most terrifying person on all of the campus. There was nothing that Dr. Horseman liked better than breaking the spirit of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, brand-new, first-year college students. His favorite classes to teach were those classes that were filled with those first-year freshman college students. When he got a class full of those students, the very first thing he would do the first semester of each year is he would assign a paper, not a big paper, just a little two-page research paper, and, and then when those papers got turned in, Dr. Horseman would break open a brand new crate of red pens and he he would go to work on those papers he would massacre those papers when those papers came back there was so much red ink on those papers that you couldn't tell what you had written that was Dr. Horseman's way of saying you're in college now you're not in high school anymore. You can't get by just on being smart. You're going to have to work harder. You're going to have to write better. You're going to have to do more if you want to pass my class. And I very much wanted to pass Dr. Horseman's class. I really didn't want to fail and, and get kicked out of college. And so that first semester of my freshman year of college, I made it my mission in life to get on Dr. Horseman's good side. What I didn't know is that Dr. Horseman didn't have a good side. It was, it was a losing battle from the very beginning. Every, every week I would spend long nights in the library doing research and I would come to class every week prepared, prepared to contribute to the class conversations. And every week Dr. Horseman would, would look at me with this expression of bemusement and contempt. And then everything I said, every contribution, every statement, every argument I made, he would push back, he would take apart, he would break down until by the end of that semester I 
I was broken down. I felt like I felt like I was drowning, and I believed that there was a very real chance I was going to fail this class and get kicked out of college before I'd even really had a chance to get started. There was only one hope I had for saving my grade and not failing Dr. Horseman's class, and that was the final paper. Now, Dr. Horseman had assigned us a great big final paper that was worth fully one half of our grade that semester, and and so I got started on that paper weeks and weeks in advance. The due date was there on the syllabus, and so I knew when it was coming, and so I went to the library, and I got cracking. And I mean, I spent long nights doing research and writing that paper. I worked for weeks and weeks, and and as I was working on that paper, I kept one eye on the clock and one eye on the calendar, and I watched as the weeks and then the days and then the minutes ticked down to to the day when that paper was going to be due. And, And finally, there came a terrifying moment when with a sense of panic and and sickness in my stomach, I realized that I was not going to get that paper done in time. Even though I'd been working on it for weeks, it was not going to be ready by the time the paper was due. The The only hope I had was to go to Dr. Horseman and beg for an extension. The only hope I had was that somehow he would find enough kindness in his heart to let me turn that paper in late. And so I went to Dr. Horseman's office with my my hat in my hand, and I knocked on the door, and he called me in, and I sat down across the desk from Dr. Horseman, and he looked, he looked across the desk at me with that same look of bemusement and contempt that he'd had every week in class, and, and then he smiled, and in that moment, I knew, I knew that he knew why I was there. I knew that he knew that I was about to ask for an extension on that paper, and I knew not only was he not going to give me an extension, but he was going to enjoy not giving me an extension. He was going to enjoy watching me grovel and squirm, and then he was going to enjoy breaking me there in his office, crushing, crushing my spirit. And so I did the only thing I could do. I made the speech that I come to make. I said, Dr. Horseman, I'm so sorry. I've been working so hard on this paper. I really have. And and I just feel like if I'm going to do the best work that I'm capable of, if I'm going to show you what I can really do, I just, I'm not going to have this paper done on time. And if you could give me even just one extra day to write this paper. I think you'll be impressed with what I've been able to put together. And Dr. Horseman said, okay. And I said, now listen, Dr. Horseman, I know that you and I haven't got along. And for some reason, we got off on the wrong foot. And I know that we've butted heads a little bit. And did you just say, okay? (laughs) And Dr. Horseman, he said, yes. I said, I said, okay, you can have the extension. Well, of course, I was, I was flabbergasted. I was absolutely stunned. And so I said to him, I couldn't help myself. I said, Dr. Horseman, I have to say, I'm, I'm surprised. I didn't expect that you were going to give in that easily. I thought I was going to have to get down on my knees and, and beg and grovel and plead with you. I said, I thought for sure you were going to give me a speech about being grown up and in college now, and you were going to tell me that the due date was right there in the syllabus and the rules are the rules, and there's, there's no nothing you could do. How is it? How is it that you gave me this extension so easily? Why did you say yes? And Dr. Horseman, he leaned back in his chair, and I'll never forget what he said next. He said, you know, he said, the truth is I used to make students grovel. And I used to say no every time they asked for an extension. Every time a student came in and sat where you're sitting right now and they asked if they could turn a paper in late, I said to them, I'm sorry, but you're grown up and in college now and the due date has been there in the syllabus the whole semester and the rules are the rules and there's nothing I can do. I used to make students squirm and I used to watch them break down in my office. And he said, then one day I realized that that just wasn't any fun. 
He said, one day I realized that saying no to those students didn't make me feel powerful. As a matter of fact, it, it did just the opposite. I realized every time I told those students the due date was there in the syllabus and there was nothing I could do, I was handing over all of my power to a piece of paper. He said, one day I, I asked myself, what is the point of being a professor if you can't bend the rules every once in a while? And so he said, I started saying yes. I made it my policy to say yes to every student who came in and asked for an extension on a paper. And he said, do you know what I discovered? He said, I discovered that we are never more powerful than when we are showing mercy to another human being. Well, what a wonderful thing to say. I left that office with a brand new perspective on who Dr. Horseman was. I finished the paper. I passed the class. I didn't fail out of college. My parents were very, very pleased about that. So was I. And, and I have to tell you, I learned a lot of things that semester. I learned a lot of things from Dr. Horseman. But the one thing that stuck with me, the one thing that has shaped my life more than anything else he taught me was not anything he taught me in the classroom, but what he taught me there in his office that day. We are never more powerful than when we are showing mercy to another human being. As a matter of fact, not only do I believe that, but I would go farther than Dr. Horseman. I would say we are, never, we are never closer to God. We are never more righteous than in that moment when we are showing mercy to another human being. Joseph, Joseph was a merciful and compassionate man. This is the first thing that we learn about Joseph when we first meet him in, in the gospel stories. Joseph, Joseph was a merciful and compassionate human being. In today's story, as we pick up the Christmas story, as we meet Joseph for the very first time, the, the, the moment that we catch Joseph in is a very difficult moment for Joseph. And Joseph has just received some, some bad news, some hard news. He's just learned that his fiancée, Mary, is pregnant. And, and, and we don't know very much about Joseph and Mary's relationship. We don't know how long they've been engaged. We don't know how they felt about each other. All that we really know about their relationship in this moment is that Joseph is not the father of this baby. And, of course, Joseph knows that Joseph is not the father of this baby. And so in that moment, Joseph makes the assumption that any man would make in a similar situation, he assumes that Mary has been unfaithful. He assumes that, that Mary has cheated on him with another man. And so now Joseph has got to find a way to break off this engagement. He's got to figure out how he's going to get out of this, this contract that he's entered into. Now Joseph in, in those days had two options. There were two ways that he could get out of his engagement to Mary. Getting out of an engagement back then wasn't, wasn't like it is today. You couldn't just take off the ring and cancel the, the banquet hall. Back, back in those days when you got engaged, you, you were in a relationship that carried the same legal legal weight as a marriage. Even if the wedding hadn't happened yet, you were legally considered to be husband and wife. And so the only way that Joseph can get out of this engagement is through a, a legal divorce. Now, when it comes to divorce, Joseph has got two options. There are two ways that he can do this. The first thing that Joseph can do is, is he can dismiss Mary quietly. Now, Joseph can go to a, a lawyer and have a contract of divorce written up, and then he can have that contract delivered to Mary, and that would be that. The engagement would be over. He would be free. She would be free to go off and, and find somebody else. The problem from Joseph's perspective is that, is that if he does that, he's going to pay a very heavy price for ending this relationship quietly. 
Back in those days in, in ancient Jewish culture, when a man and a woman got engaged to be married, they, they signed something like an ancient Jewish prenup. And, and so if Joseph breaks the engagement at this point, he's going to be hit with a, a heavy alimony payment. He's going to be hit with a financial penalty that may amount to more than all of the money he has in the world at this time. The financial payment alone could, could completely break this poor Jewish carpenter. But not only is Joseph going to pay a, a financial price if he dismisses Mary quietly, He's also going to pay a social price. For the rest of Joseph's life, he's going to have people looking at him sideways, whispering, gossiping, wondering what kind of a man gets engaged to a young woman and gets her pregnant and then leaves her at the side of the road before the marriage can even happen. Joseph's reputation and his honor may be so damaged in this that he may never find another woman who's willing to get engaged to him. He may never find a Mrs. Joseph Carpenter for the rest of his life if he dismisses Mary quietly. And so if Joseph wants to save his fortune, and if he wants to save his honor, then Joseph can't just dismiss Mary quietly. He has to opt for a public trial. He has to opt for a public divorce. What Joseph has to do is he has to take Mary to a public place and in front of witnesses accuse her of cheating on him. He has to accuse her of adultery. If Joseph does that, then there's going to be a trial. Mary will be taken to the temple in Jerusalem. She will be dragged in front of the great Sanhedrin. She will stand trial in front of a, the highest court in the land. Seventy-one wise men, 71 judges will sit in judgment over Mary. On the day of her trial, Mary will be dragged into the temple and then in front of all of the judges and in front of all the people of the city of Jerusalem, a priest, a priest will remove all of Mary's jewelry. And then he'll use his fingers to mess up her hair. And then in front of all of those people, the priest will tear her dress so that her nakedness is exposed to all of the city. And then the priest will drape her in a black cloth and he will tie a rope around her chest. All of this happens before the trial has even begun. Now, ordinarily, if Mary is found guilty of, of adultery, the penalty would be death by stoning. But because the Jews are living under, under Roman occupation, they don't have the power to give the death penalty. And so for Mary, the most likely outcome of an adultery trial is that she will suddenly find herself destitute, penniless, a, a broke single mother without any means of support, without any friends in the world. The, the chances are that if Mary goes through an adultery trial, she will end up living on the streets, probably selling her body in order to feed herself and her newborn son. How many men in Joseph's situation, how many men do you suppose feeling hurt, feeling betrayed, feeling embarrassed, feeling angry, how many men do you think would opt to sacrifice their fortune and their reputation to save the person who they believed had cheated on them with another man? Joseph is not just a merciful man. Joseph is an exceptionally merciful man. The very first thing we learn about Joseph as we pick up the Christmas story is this. Joseph, being a righteous man, did not want to expose Mary to the shame of a public's trial. And so he decided to dismiss her quietly. At the cost of his reputation, at the cost of his fortune, Joseph had decided to dismiss Mary quietly, to have mercy upon her. And maybe, maybe that's why God chose Joseph to be the earthly father of Jesus in the first place. 
Maybe that mercy that God sees in Joseph's heart, maybe that's the reason why God sends an angel, a messenger, in a dream to intervene. Maybe that's why God sends Joseph this message, trust in Mary and trust in me. Do not dismiss her, but become the father of this child. Maybe maybe Joseph's mercy is the reason why he gets to keep on being part of this story. Maybe God knew that before Jesus could teach the whole world to be merciful, he would need a father who could teach him the same by his own example. Now, this week, as you go through all of your holiday activities, I'm going to ask you to do something. I hope that you'll pay attention and notice how many times each day we suddenly find that we have power over the life of another human being. I want you to notice how many times each day we suddenly have a decision between showing mercy and raking somebody over the coals. When you go to the diner after worship today, you have power over the waitress who is struggling to cope with the after-church lunch rush. When you go out to the mall to do your Christmas shopping, you have power over the cashier who is moving a little bit slower than you would like at the end of a long and difficult day of dealing with people at the cash register. When you come home at the end of the day, you have got power over the spouse who has not had a word of affirmation from all the world all day and is just hoping to find a little bit of support and affirmation at home. You have got power over the children who are probably misbehaving because they're over-sugared and over-stimulated because of the the holiday season. You, You have got power in school over those children who are not as smart, not as popular, not as funny, not as athletic. We have power over so many people. 71 times each day, we have the choice between raking somebody over the coals and showing mercy. We have the choice between condemning someone harshly and showing that person compassion. When you find yourself in that moment, when you find yourself faced with that choice, here's what I hope. I hope you will remember that we are never more powerful than in that moment and we are showing mercy to another human being. We are never closer to God. We are never more righteous than in that moment when we choose to show mercy instead of judgment and condemnation. Let's pray. God, we pray. God, we pray that in those moments you would give us eyes to see. Help us to see the power that we have to tear and break people down. Help us to see the damage that an unkind word can do. God, help us to see the ability that you have given us to build up people all through our day. God, we pray that you would fill us with the mercy and compassion that Joseph has. God, we pray that you would fill us with the mercy and compassion that Jesus taught. God, we pray that through our gentleness, your kingdom might come just a little bit closer to this world. In Jesus we pray. Amen.